Okay, I'm glad you guys are here. It's Rosh Chodesh Adar. So this is the beginning of, it says in uh, the Talmud that when Adar comes, you have to increase in Simcha. So that means happiness and uh, how we define happiness, that's a subject in itself. But basically you recognize that there's a God and God's running the world. So if you know that someone other than you is in the driver's seat, then that's a tremendous relief. You just got to do your thing and then God takes care of the rest. So that's, that's Simcha. Understanding that, you know, we have what we need to do, but not everything is completely relying on us. There's a bigger plan that we're part of. And we're in good hands. So that produces Simcha. Simcha is also um, a mind expansiveness. It's, it's transcending the, the little things that are right in front of your face. Because life gets us down. Life has a lot of gravity. It just like it pulls us down and it makes us focus on the little things and all the things that are going wrong. And then we can't see all the other stuff that's going right. If we stay in a state of simcha, what happens is that happiness expands our mind. And then we're able to see past the little things that are just the difficulties in front of us and appreciate all the blessings that we have. So these are, these are important ideas. Now, it's no coincidence that on Purim, we re-accepted the Torah. So this is a very important foundation that ties in with this whole idea. Because remember, before the world was created, it's that God looked into the Torah and then created the world. That the Torah is actually the blueprint for the whole universe. And we've talked about this many, many times, this whole concept that the Torah existed before the world existed. So, how do you understand that? Without going into too much detail, just to summarize the basic uh, most salient points, so we're all on the same page, you have to understand that the Torah is not a book. People think the Torah is a book, or the Torah is a scroll. The Torah is more than that. The Torah is God's will, so to speak. In the most Kabbalistic texts, the Torah itself is identified with God, that the Torah and God are one. Meaning to say that the Torah is not God, but the Torah is the will of God. And if you want to know who someone is, Find out what, what do they want? What is their will? If you can figure out what it is their desires are and everything like that, that's the essence of the person. So the essence of God is expressed in the Torah. And that existed before the world was created. And the world itself is an expression and a realization for God to express His will. So that's intense. So the idea that the Torah was accepted on Purim Let's get into what that means exactly. Everybody knows the Torah was accepted at Mount Sinai on the holiday of Shavuos. So what does it mean it was accepted on Purim? And how does that connect to expansiveness? And, and we'll get more deeply into this whole idea of also purity. Because, because purity and simcha, purity and happiness and Torah are all, you'll see, they're all one concept. And one of the ways of unlocking this entire structure is through rejoicing and understanding that God is even in the hidden places. Because the biggest problem that we have in terms of being in a state of joy is that we all experience a sense of utter existential abandonment. We, we walk through life and when times are good, we... we 
We feel that God is there and we can feel all these concepts that we're talking about right now. But when things get tough, it feels like, it feels like the whole game changed. Like, like God's not there and what am I even thinking and why am I not feeling it and what's, what's going on exactly? You know, I said a prayer and you know, it doesn't happen too often, but sometimes I'll say something and it just resonates in me and I feel like, oh, that, that worked, that, some, that was right. You know, I, I, I woke up and, I don't know, maybe I was tired or maybe I had weird, some weird dreams or whatever it was, I don't know. But I, I woke up in a, in, a, in a kind of a really down state. I think it was this week, one day this week. And, um, you know, so I was in that frame of mind. And normally speaking, I, when I'm in that frame of mind, I just feel the disconnect that we were just talking about. Like, you know, all of the Torah that you learn and everything like that all of a sudden becomes very academic. Like, it doesn't apply to me. And, and so it's very hard. It's a very hard state to be in. How do you, how do you get out of that state? So, so here was the thing that I said, and it sort of like amazed me. The words just kind of came out of my mouth. I was talking to God. I said, more or less, the, 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 this thought. I said, God, please cleanse my heart Wash my heart of the idea that you're not there. Please wash my heart, cleanse my heart of the idea that you're not involved in my life right now. And what was so, to me, personally, sort of like momentous or powerful about that moment was, I was not trying to reinvent the presence of God in my sadness and then try to situate myself in that academic thought of a God that exists and is involved in our lives, I was talking to God directly from that place of alienation and saying, God, I know what the truth is. The truth is that you're there and that you're involved. Wash my heart of the idea that that I'm feeling otherwise. And so it was a weird kind of like, you know, if you want to put it in football terms, it was like this weird end around, the the Sahara, where it was sort of like, you know... Anyway, hopefully I'm communicating. God is there even when he feels like he's not there, and you can talk to him even in an alienated, disconnected state, and say, God, take away, that, take away those feelings. Please, God, because I know you're there. And I felt so much better. I felt so connected afterwards. You know, I saw him in the writings of the Alter Rebbe, it was in the Tanya, that, um, that he said something very interesting. He said, talked about a strategy, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but, but the idea was that you can say to the Eight Sahara, the Eight Sahara, the evil inclination, that force which comes to you, which is also identified with the force of Amalek, which is our enemy in Purim, that's what we're defeating, you know, in the whole Purim story. Amalek comes to a person, the Eight Sahara comes to a person, and uh, tells the person that they're all alone, tells the person all sorts of lies and... Uh, lies and uh, Apicorsis, all sorts of heresy, anti-religious thoughts, unreligious thoughts, you know, impure things, all the rest. And, um, and yet, what's the irony? The irony is that the Yetzirah is an angel and the, and the, and the Yetzirah works for God. So the Yetzirah, who's telling you all these lies, the Yetzirah knows what the truth is. Because the Yetzirah is an angel and is standing before the revealed presence of God. So, what the Altar Rebbe says is, say to the Yetzirah, you don't believe these things. Why should I believe these things? 
I've tried that. It works. It works, I'm telling you. You don't believe these things. Why should I believe these things? So, so when you feel, again, that sense of alienation, you can talk to God directly. God, cleanse my heart of this. Because the ultimate truth remains the ultimate truth. God is there and He's directing everything. You know, we get into our moods, but that doesn't nullify the presence of God, God forbid. Okay, so what happened historically? So the rabbis, this is a very, very deep subject, and I'm just really going to touch on one aspect of it, because there's tons of, tons and tons of Torah on this, on this question, which is that, you see, what's so great about the Jewish people, what's so awesome about the Jewish people, is that we're functioning on every single level simultaneously. We're, we're talking nitty-gritty, nuts and bolts in terms of what the halacha is, where you can put the pot on Shabbos, vis-a-vis the blech on the flame, how you have to cut, what you have to have in mind, where the pot had to be before Shabbos. I mean, it's so detailed in terms of the nitty-gritty. At the same time, we're talking about angels, and we're talking about the stratosphere, and we're talking about the world before it was created. It's the most mystical religion in the world, and it's the most nitty-gritty religion in the entire world. We're functioning on every single plane simultaneously. It's one of the reasons why the world doesn't quite understand us, because they can't quite get a hold on us. You know, they're like, how can you be all over the map? But, you know, when you think that we're literally all over the map, it's, it's, it's logical that, that we produce the greatest scientists and the greatest businessmen and the greatest artists I mean, they're coming from every single field, even though we're this tiny little segment, because we have the most expanded grasp of reality. That's, that's what it is, because the Torah is totally comprehensive. It's totally comprehensive. Okay, so now, the most amazing thing, the most miraculous thing that ever happened in human history, God reveals himself, he speaks to us directly en masse. Millions of people at, at Mount Sinai. Millions of people at Mount Sinai. And he talks to all of us, and we all have the same revelation. No other religion has the audacity to claim such a thing, because it's so easily disproven. Every other main religion has one guy. One guy, and he says, trust me. Right? I mean, it's amazing. What religion would say that God spoke simultaneously to two and a half Million people, approximately, at the same time. The most easily disproved claim in the entire world. And yet we do it. You know, why, you know how we got away with saying that? Because it happens. That's, <laughs> that's how. So, so the point is, okay, so you have this thing that's utterly miraculous. Heaven coming down to earth. Heaven fusing with earth. Right? It's an incredible thing. At the same time, though, there's this incredible legal argument that's, that's being made during this massive miracle. What's the legal argument? You cannot coerce another party into an agreement. If you coerce, that means to force. If you force another party into signing an agreement, that agreement is not legally valid. It's coercion. It doesn't count. I can't get you to voluntarily voluntarily sign away all your wealth to me while I have a gun at your head? And I say, look, I have a contract. I have a signature on the contract. That's not legally binding. Your signature may be there, but it's not worth anything. That's that piece of paper. So what do the rabbis tell us? The rabbis tell us that God put the mountain 
of Mount Sinai over our heads and said, if you don't accept the Torah, very good. This is going to be your burial place. <laughs> it's going to drop down on your head. You know, I'll tell you something. It's, uh, this is sort of a darkly comic comment that's coming from me right now, not, not from our illustrious history. But, you know, a lot of things that you learn about the marriage ceremony are learned from Mount Sinai. So it's kind of funny, like the chuppah, a little bit, like there's a thing over your head. And it's sort of like, you know, if you want to... Anyway, hopefully you'll connect the dots here. <laughs> so anyway... <laughs> so, so, so it has to be voluntary. It has to be voluntary. And seemingly, our, our acceptance of the Torah at Mount Sinai there seems to be some question about how voluntary it was. Now, of course, it was voluntary. And like I say, there's tons and tons and tons of Torah on this subject. And I urge you, if you're interested in it, to look it up, because it's all, it's all great, and it's all very, very deep. Um, one of the explanations that I heard, which makes a lot of sense to me, is that what does it mean that we were coerced? It means that our free will was taken away. Because God... God exposed himself, meaning he revealed himself. Remember, remember what happened. Um, there was a fire on the mountain, and there was uh, thunder, and there was lightning, and there was a chauffeur blast that just got louder and louder and louder and louder. You know, when a human blows a chauffeur, it gets louder and then it gets softer. This chauffeur blast just kept on getting louder. But flowers sprung up all of Mount Sinai. You know, I mean, it was this... It was this it was pyrotechnics. People heard colors and saw words. Okay, that's called synesthesia. Okay? Every, all the senses were rearranged. I mean, it was wild. And then, as though that's not enough, what was our reaction? Our souls literally flew out of our bodies. Okay? And then they had to be put back in. And then the same thing happened. Our souls flew out of our bodies again. And God put them back in. He literally resurrected us at Mount Sinai two times. And then after the second time, we said, Hey, you know what? Moshe, why don't you get the rest of the Torah? We'll stay here. Because, you know, I don't know how many times we can do that. Okay? So, so the, the idea is, it wasn't lack of faith. It was just, it was, it was, a, little, it was a little taxing, I guess. Let's just say in terms of understatement. The point, though, is, is, is that our free choice was taken away in a very deep way because the presence of God was so revealed that how could we say no? So that's like the mountain being held over our heads, meaning how can we say no? So then, so then if that's the case, how must we then accept the Torah in order for it to be legally binding? We must accept it when our free choice is extant, when it's in play. Now, when is one's free choice in play? When you have the power to decide, is there a God, is there not a God? Does he want something from me? Maybe he doesn't want anything from me. Maybe there's a God and he's not involved in my life at all. Maybe he created the world and went bye-bye. You know, so, so that's free choice. Free choice is being able to decide in a place where things look grim. And then from that place say, hey, there's a God. 
and he wants something. That's the Purim story. That's the acceptance of this Torah at, at the end of the Purim story. So we say, Kimu Vakibu at the end of the Megillah, and the Chachamim say that what was accepted, the Torah was accepted again, and now it was accepted from a place of free choice. Because we thought we were going to be absolutely destroyed, and it seemed like God wasn't there. And then we saw, wait a second, God was behind the scenes directing everything the entire time. God is there. And we're going to choose to follow that God and attach ourselves to that God. So that, that's awesome. That's awesome. Now, now, you see, so the full acceptance of the Torah, the full acceptance of the Torah happened at the end of the, the, um, the Purim uh, situation. Now, now I want to further develop this idea. So let me just restate the premise. You cannot fully accept the Torah without Purim. Okay? Because that marked our full acceptance of the Torah. Okay. Now, with that in mind, I want to develop that further. We just read about the giving of the Torah, Parshas Yisra. Something very amazing. It's very amazing that, that this, the, the event in terms of human history is named after someone who converted to Judaism. That, that in itself is quite phenomenal. I mean, w- why not call it Parshas Moshe? If there was ever a, a Parsha that should be Parsha, and there is no Parsha's Moshe, which is amazing. That in itself is amazing. But why not call it Parsha's Moshe? Calling it Parsha's Yisro is really, I mean, it shows you how much God loves every single person. And what every single person is capable of. Okay, so, so we just had the, the giving of the Torah. And everybody knows in the Aseris Adibros, translated as the Ten Commandments, not a great translation, the Ten Sayings, right? Aseris Adibros. Dibor is, is to speak, the Ten Speakings, if you will. So, and I have to tell you, just one of the most gorgeous formulations of anything ever, Rav Shlomo says, what are the Ten, what are the Aseris Adibros? These are God's Dreams for humanity. And when we keep them, we're dreaming God's dreams. Right? Which is awesome. You know, someone asked Reb Shlomo one time, I think it's recorded in Holy Brother, a little boy asked Reb Shlomo, is this world real? Or is it a dream? And Reb Shlomo answered back, this world is real in God's dream." Which is very, very deep. <laughs> but it's real. It's real. That's awesome. Anyway. Um, so, the Balatorum brings down that if you count the letters of the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, if you will, if you count the number of letters, it's 620. 620, which is the gematria, the numerical equivalent of the word keter, which means crown. Okay? Now, I was thinking about this, and I want to just go more deeply into this idea. So, so Keter and Crown, and also this notion that our full acceptance of, of Torah came at the end of Purim. 
when we did it with free will. And how Simcha and Torah and purity are all one, are all connected. So we're going to explain how this works. So, 620 letters of the Torah, and remember, the entire Torah is contained within the Asaras Adibras, the, the Ten Commandments. Now, that can be broken down in the following way. 613 plus 7. 613 is the number of mitzvahs there are, commandments there are in the Torah. 7 is the number of rabbinical commandments that have been added over history. Okay? I'll go through the 7 with you. Hopefully I can rattle them all off. Washing hands before bread. Okay? Which was instituted by Shlomo HaMelech. Eruv. Eruv. That's, um... Actually, Eruv was by Shlomo HaMelech. Washing hands may have been, I'm not positive. Um, so, washing hands before bread. Eruv. Shabbos candles. Bruchas. Hanukkah lights. Halel. And the seventh is reading the Megillah on Purim. And all the mitzvahs of Purim. Right? Now that's not in historical order. But, but you see, Purim is one of the seven. So 613 plus seven equals 620, which is the number of letters in the giving of the Torah, which is also the gematria of the word crown. Keter. So I was wondering, I was thinking about this. Why crown? Why crown? And how does it all fit together? By the way, many people will tell you, and by people I mean the greatest rabbis ever, <laughs> will tell you that that seven, it's, everyone breaks it down, the 620 to 613.7, but many or even most rabbis will tell you that seven stands for the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, the seven universal mitzvahs. Okay? My, the reason why I don't love that, even though I appreciate it and it's great, is because those seven are included in the 613. So, so I kind of like this formulation of the seven mitzvahs that we had. Okay. So now, look at it this way. Look how it all fits together. It's, I think, very, very beautiful. So I was thinking about this. And I want to say the following. Which is that a crown rests on a head. And actually, I, so I sort of added that to crown, because I'm wondering, why crown, right? Saying, well, what is, a, what is a crown? A crown is something that rests on a head. And then I was really happy, because I looked it up again in the Balatorum, and he talked about a crown resting on a head. So I thought, okay, that's okay, we're on the right track here, okay? A crown rests on the head. Now, the 613, that represents the Torah Shavak Tzav, the written Torah. The seven is the Torah Shabal Pet. That's what the rabbis came up with. That comes from one's head. Okay? So the crown rests on the head. Together, it's 620. Together, it's the Torah, the written Torah, and the oral Torah, which come and combine to make the, the entire Torah. Okay? Now, let's revisit the idea that when did we accept the Torah and what did we accept at Mount Sinai and what did we accept exactly at the end of Purim? Well, another formulation, I told you there's a ton of Torah and a ton of explanations of it. Another explanation is we accepted the written Torah at Mount Sinai and we accepted the oral Torah, the Torah Shabbat after Purim. 
So then it works really nicely. The 613 and the 7, one of the 7 is of course Purim. Understanding, you see, understanding that God is working through me. God is working through me. You know, it's so interesting that the two holidays contained in the seven are Purim and Hanukkah. Because we've pointed it out before. Have we got a, an art scroll sitter? If you can give me the, the, the black sitter, I think it's over there. We pointed it out before that, that, the, that, the, that the blessing, that the blessing of, um, that we say over the Hanukkah candles is and the Ari says because a lot of people say the Ari says knock out the word shell just it should be you know and like when we light the candles as a family there's always this big moment where we get up to the word shell and we all look at each other. Don't say shell! <laughs> and it's become sort of like a joke, you know? Why? Why don't we want to say the word shell? What's wrong with that? Well, if you, if you, if you replace that word, if you, you don't really need it in terms of to express the thought anyway. But without it, it's Lahadlich Ne'er Hanukkah. So the Ari points out that if you take the first three letters of the last three words... Lahadlik Ner Hanukkah Lamed Nun Ches, and you rearrange it, it spells the word Nachal, which is river. And the whole idea of the Hanukkah story, and I'm saying, the reason why I'm talking about Hanukkah right now, is because I'm showing you that it's the same concept as Purim as well. The whole idea is, there's a divine flow that comes down and God works through us, through our expanded consciousness, which we achieve through Simcha. You know, this word Simcha, Yismach means he will rejoice. It's from the word Simcha. It's, it's another form of the word Simcha. If you rearrange the letters of Yismach, it spells Mashiach. Okay, so this expansion, this expanded consciousness, allows us to become vessels through which God can flow through us. So the idea is, you know, you know if you want to talk to someone about God, and I heard Reb Shlomo say this, I'll never forget it, he said, the real question is, because a lot of people want to make this argument and that argument, and, you know, I, I, I am of the belief that God intentionally designed the world in such a way that His presence cannot be proven. If you want to be, because He wants to preserve free choice, if you want to be open to the idea that there might be a God, and then you investigate it from there, you will find countless proofs. You will find countless proofs of His existence. However, if you want to come up to someone who whatever, and just in a, in a debate prove the existence of God, I don't know that that can ever be necessarily successful. So what I think is so interesting about this thing that Reb Shlomo said is, it bypasses the whole idea of any debate, any, his, any historical kind of like conversation, and it, and, and it boils down to this. He said, the question is, do you believe that God is in an ongoing conversation with the world? Do you believe that God is in the middle of an ongoing conversation with the world, with his creation. And if in your heart of hearts you say yes to that, then you're down with the entire tradition. You've just, you, you, then all you have to do is like, it, it's like that famous thing with the, 
the convert coming up to um, Hillel. He says, teach me the entire Torah while I'm standing on one foot. And Hillel says, Love your, don't do what is hateful to you, to other people. Right? And um, he says, the rest is commentary, now go and learn. If you believe that God is in the middle of an ongoing conversation with the world, then, you know what? Judaism is for you. <laughs> welcome. Welcome. You just investigate what Judaism has to say, and you're, you're, you're on board. You're on board. Because at that point, of course there was a revelation of Mount Sinai. Of course there was. Of course there was. God who created the world, who can do anything, can communicate His, wor- wor- his will in a second, as He did. As He did, in the most miraculous fashion. You know, I, I can't not say this. I heard Rabbi Matasyahu Solomon, the uh, Mashkiach at Lakewood, say it, and I, I never forgot it. It's so great. Which is, he said, a blender comes with a 32-page book of instructions. Is it possible the world doesn't come with a book of instructions? Is it possible? I mean, I, I once imagined, I don't know, compelling a, uh, a, a, a thought this is, but I, I once imagined... You, you do someone the greatest favor in the world, you build a palace for them, and, and then you put them in, and you don't tell them where any of the, where any of the light switches are. You don't tell them, can you imagine, like, like, you don't know how to, have you ever gotten, like, one of these, like, high-tech gadgets, and you don't know how to work it? It's really, it's humbling and embarrassing. You know? But it, But can you imagine that then the person never tells you how to use it? Is it possible that something as complex and beautiful as the world would be given to human beings and they're not told how to use the world? Is it possible? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. If you accept the premise of a creator at all, it's impossible that that creator would not communicate his instructions or his will how to utilize his creation. It's impossible. So if you say, if you start from the standpoint of saying, well, wait a second, you're trying to tell me that people came to a mountain and they heard a voice and so many people, is that, and it's so detailed and, uh, what are you talking about? But, oh, all right, I hear that. But if you say, well, wait a second, do you believe that that God is in the middle of an ongoing conversation with humanity? Then it's like, yeah, I believe that. Well, then he's, gonna, he's going to be more articulate about his will at one point, isn't he? Just to tell you what's going on. Absolutely. Well, that's what happened at Mount Sinai. Oh, that's what happened at Mount Sinai? Yeah, I totally get that. You know? So, so now... So we've got this idea that the final acceptance of the Torah has to come from a place of free choice, which means from a place when God is hidden. Now listen to this. This is something that... Oh, wait a second. Before we leave the whole number of 620, I almost forgot. I saw this. I got so excited about it. So I looked up the number 620. You ready? 620 is the gematria of like absolutely one of the biggest words in the Torah. I'll tell you what it is. It's in, um, it's in uh, Sefer Vayikra, uh, the book of Leviticus, uh, chapter 16, verse um, 
Verse 30... Wait. Let's see, where is it? Sorry. Um, oh, I'm sorry. 14.4. 14.4. I wonder why I was there. Okay. So 14.4 is the word... Um, oh, wait a second. No, no, no. 16.30. Oh, that's right. Okay. So uh, chapter 16, verse 30... 620, which we said what? Is what? 620 is the number of letters in the giving of the Torah. Right? That's from the Balaturim. Which is 613 plus 7. That is the written law plus the oral law. That is the crown upon one's head. Right? Because the 7 is the head. That's the rabbis. They came up with the 7. The crown upon the head. That's the whole Torah together. 620. And remember... The rabbis say that the oral law was actually written on the first set of tablets. That was one of the miraculous aspects of the first set of tablets of that 620 was that it contained all the oral law as well. But that got smashed. And then we had to work to, to derive it. That's in the second tablets, okay? All right, so, so 620 is the gematrium. I feel like there should be a drum roll, you know? Yeah. Is the... <laughs> Maybe that's just me. Um, it's the gematria of the word titaru. Titaru means you shall be cleansed. And it comes from this Pusik. Maybe this will sound familiar. For on this day, he shall provide atonement for you to cleanse you. And all of your sins before Hashem shall be cleansed. That is the Pasuk of Yom Kippur. That is the headquarters of Yom Kippur. Okay? You shall be cleansed. Hashem says, I'm going to cleanse you. And what's the word? You shall be cleansed. Titaru, which is the Gematria 620, which shows you the more Torah one brings down into themselves, into the world, the more cleansing and purification and forgiveness takes place. Now, in order to bring that down, though, in order to bring that down, you have to be strong when God feels like He's hidden. Now, the whole miracle of Purim happened during the month of Adar. Adar is spelled Aleph, Dalid, Reish. Dar, the last two letters, means to dwell. The Aleph, which symbolizes God, because Aleph is the first letter, and we know if you break down the letter Aleph, it, it's two Yuds and a Vav, which is 26, which is the numerical equivalent of Yud Ke Vav Ke. Right? Aleph stands for God. Aleph is dwelling. That's Adar. That means in the darkest times, in the darkest month, God is still there. The Aleph is there. It's dwelling. And then Rabbi Perry added, if you reverse the letters Dalit and Resh, it becomes Resh Dalit, which is Raid, which is like Yored, which means come down. Which means the Aleph is coming down. Right? Even in this time of darkness. It's there. It's accessible. But in order to see it, you need expanded consciousness, which is Simcha, which is happiness. That's joy. Joy is the ultimate fixer. Now, this whole idea of the hiddenness of God you see, 
You want to hear something really weird? If you didn't know it already? Do you know when Amalek attacked us, when he attacked the, the, the soldiers, the, the, the Jewish male army, do you know what the Medrash says that he did? He cut off our private parts. Okay? And they, they took that limb and they threw it up in the sky <laughs> to mock God because that's where the sign of the covenant is. Right? That's where Abris Mila is. I mean, it's like so weird and twisted. It's totally weird. Okay? So, Rabbi Wolfson brings down that, you know, what's, what's so interesting about Abris Mila is that it's hidden. You know, we don't... You know, I, I, I heard something in, in the name of a very big rabbi... And someone came up to him and said, how come you don't wear your tzitzis out? He said, I also don't wear my bris mila out. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, the idea is this, 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 this sign, which is the, the sign of the covenant between us and God, is hidden. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. You would think that would be the most revealed thing. Right? But it's not. It's the most hidden thing. So what does Amalek want to do? Amalek wants to go and to, to, to show that that which is hidden isn't real. That which isn't revealed isn't real. You see, but our connection with God is so deep. It's so deep that it's beyond the revealed. It's so deep, it's beyond the revealed. We're connected even when we feel like we're, connect- we're not connected. We're still totally connected. Even when, our, even when our, the sign of our connection is hidden, it's still there. So now... I noticed something. This is one of my favorite Torahs that, that sort of Hashem blessed me with. The word for pregnancy. Okay, why are we talking about pregnancy right now? Because pre- when, when a baby is inside of a woman, then it's hidden. It's, it's secret. Now, listen to this. There are 12 months during the year but every once in a while, you get a, a year where there's an extra month, a 13th month. And you know what that year is called? A pregnant year. So there's this hiddenness to this extra month. It's the second month of Adar. We had an extra month of Adar. And according to the rabbis, the miracle of Purim happened during that 13th month during a year where there was a leap year. So the whole idea of Purim, which is the whole idea that God is even in the hiddenness, happened during the hidden month, which is called the pregnant month or the pregnant year, because that's, that's when it's hidden inside. Okay? It's funny, you know, I, I, I didn't mean to say it, but, but you have, we were just talking about the brismila, that by a man it's hidden, and by... You know, that's sort of like what makes a man a man. That's what makes a man a man, right? But one of the amazing things about a woman that's unique to a woman is pregnancy. 
And that whole process is hidden. So it's interesting that our, our most sort of like sacred attributes are hidden away, are hidden from sight. It's just a, kind of an interesting uh, notion, the way God made us. Anyway, so the point is like this. Purim happened during this 13th month. And I'll tell you something really cool if you don't know it already. You know, every single month, there are 12 months, right? Except for that exception, but we're going to get to that in a moment. There are 12 months. Every month has a tribe, because there are 12 tribes that correlate to it. And also a different permutation, a different combination of the letters of the Yudke Vavke, of Hashem's name. And there are 12 permutations that you can do with those letters, with those four letters. The reason why it's not more than that is because the letter He is repeated twice. So that cuts down on the number of permutations. But there are 12 permutations, one for each month. Now, when you do the... I'm going to get technical for a moment, but those of you who understand, understand. In the Shemona Esrei of Musaf, when you get to Birkas HaChodesh, when it comes to saying Hashem's name, you're supposed to have the combination of the letters of that month in mind when you say that. And you can see different sitters will tell you what the combination is for each month. Okay? By the way, even Art Scroll brings that down. If you look, it's in the Nusach Sfard Old Hebrew one. But even Art Scroll will, will list them there. And, um, and so you can consult that chart. Anyway, the question is like this. What do you say when there's a leap year? Because that's the 13th month and there's only 12 combinations. Right? The answer is all 12 combinations you're supposed to have in mind. In other words, that 13th month which shows on hiddenness is the culmination of everything of how God is guiding us. You know, nothing is difficult for God at all. But, so to speak, it involves more to not show your hand than to show your hand. You know, if you want to do like a bit of sleight of hand for someone, think about how much more work goes into hiding what's going on as opposed to just showing what's going on. I'll tell you, when I was a little kid, one of the most embarrassing things that ever happened to me, there was this old lady, God bless her, and anyway, I just kind of thought she had lost her mind. I was a young kid and, you know, an idiot. And so what I did was I just placed a half dollar on her shoulder, (laughs) And then I showed her how there's no coin in my hand. And then at a certain point, I just sort of lifted it off her shoulder, which I imagined she had no idea that I had done that, and showed her how this coin had magically appeared. And she completely saw me put the coin on her shoulder, and this was very nice to me. But when I realized that she had seen all that, I... Well, I feel bad to this day. Let's just put it that way. Um, The point is... The point is, more goes in, again, not that anything is hard for God, but more goes into hiding something than to revealing something. So the irony is that when we feel God isn't there, God is actually more there because he's putting more effort into hiding himself than that. Do do you understand? So, So anyway, this concept of the 13th month, and Rabbi Wilson says something unbelievable, Again, in case you don't know it, since each of the 12 months has a tribe, what tribe is the 13th month? Because there's no tribe. All the tribes have been taken already, right? 
So you could say all of the tribes, right, based on the fact that all, but that's not what he says. That's not, I, I don't know that anyone says that, by the way. What, what he says is something really beautiful. When the Jews traveled in the desert, they traveled by tribe in formation. And that, that formation, by the way, was a, was, a, was a reproduction, a replica of how the, how the twelve sons were around the coffin of Jacob. Okay? So now it was, instead of the coffin of Jacob, now it was the Ark of the Covenant. And that was each of the tribes, and they traveled in that order. Okay? A cloud of glory. There were many clouds of glory that enwrapped them from every side, but there was, there was one over them. And when that cloud of glory was going, it was time to leave. You had a certain amount of time, and then you had to leave. There were stragglers. All right? There were stragglers. And those stragglers just were like, eh, you know, whatever, I'll catch up. They were not within the cloud. And those, those people were considered, spiritually speaking, lowlifes. <laughs> Hate to put it in those terms, but they were not on the highest level, spiritually speaking. They are the 13th tribe. Even they are protected, and even they are included, and even they are loved. And that's what we have in mind when we come to the 13th month. So every aspect of the Jewish people is protected and, 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 and beloved. Okay, Even, even those of us who, who aren't connected. So... So let's get back to this idea of pregnancy for a moment, because, because this is, this, in, this, in this thought is the whole notion of hiddenness, okay? And Purim is hidden. And remember, we're going to wrap it up with this, so let's just make sure we understand what, what thought is being said right now, because it's going to wrap up a lot of what we've been talking about. So we said... That at Mount Sinai, we accepted the Torah, but that the finishing of the acceptance of the Torah at Mount Sinai, and how do you say mountain, by the way? Har. Har. Okay? Har Sinai. We say Har. Okay? So at Mount Sinai, the acceptance of the Torah began, but because God held the mountain over our heads, so to speak, or revealed his wondrousness in such a way, it took away our free choice. So we needed to re-accept it from a place of free choice, which means from a place of where God would be very hidden. So Haman comes to power. And by the way, I just heard that in Israel, made the news, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, one of the biggest rabbis in the world, just said that Ahmadinejad is Haman. He just made a pronouncement, which is a very amazing thing. A very amazing thing. So, so anyway, uh, we finished the acceptance from a place of the hiddenness of God. When we had free choice, when we could wonder, is he there, is he not there? And we said, oh, for sure, he's there, he's absolutely there, he saved us. We thought he had abandoned us, but it turns out he was saving us in the most hidden, miraculous way. And then from our place of free choice, we finished the acceptance of the Torah. So now, look how that was contained on the inside of our acceptance at Mount Sinai. Look how it was a continuation. Look how it was another more hidden aspect. Okay? Okay. So, 
What is the word for pregnant in, in Hebrew? So it's um, tahar. Tahar. Um, Tet heresh, or rather, tough heresh. Tahar literally means to mountainize. And if you think about it, it's something very, very sweet. Because, you know, a woman's stomach becomes like a little mountain. And what is Harsinai? It was like this little mountain. It was the smallest mountain. Right? So, Tahar means to mountainize. Now, what do we know? The Gemara brings down in, in Masechta Nida that what happens inside of a pregnant woman, and this, we all experience this, okay? Every one of us. God teaches you the entire Torah. An angel comes and teaches you the entire Torah. So what is that mountain? What, is it, what does it mean then to become sort of like a mountain? It's, it, it's Mount Sinai. It's Mount Sinai because the person is inside of you receiving the entire Torah. And it's happening in this hidden way. It's happening in this hidden way. And yet it's going on. So, so that was the concealed, that was the acceptance of the Torah in concealment. That's the acceptance of the Torah in concealment. Okay? Which happened during the pregnant month. Right? The 13th month, which is called when the year is a Shana Uberis, it's, it's, it's a pregnant year. Purim took place. Inside. Right? When God was hidden. And we accepted the entire Torah. So, you know, I don't know why. Every once in a while I feel uh, like I have to tell this thing. But it's one of those times. I was once uh, driving and I was listening to NPR and they were talking about the monarch butterfly. And the monarch butterfly is something that's been studied by scientists and they still haven't figured this out. Every once in a while they say, ah, we figured it out. Modern science has not solved this question yet. Okay? And uh, they've postulated all sorts of amazing things that, like, it's, it has to do with the... I'll tell you what it is in a moment, but I'm just telling you how, how hard they're trying to solve this problem. That it deals with the, the Earth's magnetism they've even thrown out and all the rest, and, and no one is satisfied with the answer science gets to this problem. How can it be that the monarch butterfly... Every single year, this happens every single year, goes from Mexico and flies from Mexico to Canada. And it flies then from Canada, you know, a little bit later on in the year, back to Mexico. Now, if you think about that, you say, well, what's the big deal exactly? I'll tell you what the big deal is. The monarch butterfly doesn't live long at all, which means that the monarch butterfly that begins the journey from Mexico to Canada has never been to Canada before. Okay? Not only has it never been to Canada before, but as it starts toward Canada, it dies. And it gives birth to another generation 
who has also never been to Canada before. And then that child dies and gives birth to another generation who's also never been to Canada before. And I think it's the third or fourth generation that makes it to Canada every year. And then the process repeats itself from Canada back to Mexico. They start back to Mexico never having been to Mexico. And then their children die who have never been to Mexico before. Maybe you'd think they'd go back to Canada. Right? They don't go back to Canada. They keep on going till they get to Mexico. Several generations later. They cannot figure this out. Science has not figured out this, this riddle. So when I heard about this, I thought, you know something? We're all heading to Israel. We're heading to Israel. All of us, all of us, we're all going. We're all going. We're all going. And you know what? We're the children of people who are also heading to Israel. And you know what? They're the children of people who are also heading to Israel. Many of whom have never been. And you know what? We're going to get there. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. God should bless us that we should accept the Torah and understand that God is there even when it seems like He's not there. And it feels, if it feels like He's not there, we don't have to think our way out of it. We just have to talk to God and say, God, please cleanse my heart of this notion that you're not there because I know you are. And God should bless us that we really should see the full redemption for Hashem's namesake. Amen. Amen.